welcome to this very special episode of Onside Punt. We have the absolute pleasure of talking to one of the greats of the NFL. Christmas has come early for us, Cat. Darren Bennett joined us, homie, and what an interview it was. And he is one of the all-time greats from the Chargers. His list of accolades and what he's achieved is unparalleled. Such a unique story that he gave us, homie. Oh, incredible insight. It warms me, this story, and I just love every aspect of it. But I don't want to hold up to you too long. I want you to get into this story. Mm-hmm. So, so let's, let's roll on the tape already. Kate. Yeah, sit back, everyone, and enjoy this interview with the legendary Darren Bennett. Today, we've got a very special guest joining us. He's a former AFL star who went in search of an NFL career, and boy, did he make his mark, landing at the San Diego Chargers, where he was later inducted to the Chargers Hall of Fame. He made the NFL's all-decade team in the 90s, first pro or all-pro in 95, made the Pro Bowl twice, and possibly the highest honour of all, making the 1996 All-Madden team. Darren Bennett, welcome to the show. G'day, boys. How are you doing? Very well. Yeah. You want me to start with the All Madden thing? You know, you know who I took over from in, in, on the All Madden team in '96. No. It was the Budweiser Clydesdales that uh, the the year before they had a commercial where they back kicked the field goal over a set of uh, power lines. So <laughs> I, I, up until up until I made the Madden team, I, the special teams player was sort of a bit of a joke, you know. So yeah, I took over from the from the the Budweiser Clydesdales. <laughs> Well, I do want to dive into that Madden team uh, when we get to kind of your career with the Chargers because I did get to watch the the tape that they put out uh, with Madden presenting all of the players and I did enjoy your video. Uh, but, homie, do you want to kick us off? We know you as an NFL star, but others would know you as an AFL star and that's where we want to start your journey. Uh, you were described as a generational player with a prodigious kick and a strong overhead mark. How did the boy growing up from Perth become Melbourne's two times leading goal score kicker? Yeah, so I started in the, actually I started in Melbourne. You know, I, I was in Noble Park and I played in the juniors in the South Melbourne district there and I played South Melbourne Little League as a 10 and 11 year old and I played with, I think, six or seven guys that played in the AFL. I grew up with Darren Mullane and and uh, some of the more the, the Morewood boys and, and all that sort of stuff. So Looking back over the years, uh, the Fridge, John Roberts from North Melbourne, we all played Little League together. So it was a tremendous way to, to grow up. And, and some of those coaches uh, in those Little League teams were such instrumental coaches and, and real mentors for me and really set me on that mentoring track, knowing that you could pass on that knowledge. So in those days, we used to practice at uh, South Melbourne at the, at the Lakeside Oval and the the league team, the, the South Melbourne seniors, would practice before us. So we'd be running out on the ground, and the, the league team would be walking off, and Graham Teasdale and Ricky Quaid and all those guys in the 70s were there. So it really inspired us as kids, you know. And, in fact, we had a really good team. And one day the, the seniors were getting smashed, and we went out for halftime, and the coach kept them out and made them sit around the boundary and watch us play at halftime. That was how upset he was with the seniors. So... <laughs> Uh, so anyway, when, when I was about 12, my, my dad moved, went to Perth for a, uh, a computer conference and so, sort of fell in love with the Swan River and the feeling in Perth. And so we moved there and I came up through the set, the uh, East Fremantle uh, juniors, played in their junior representatives teams. And then I had a situation when I was about 15 or 16 that I had a friend who 
unfortunately, suicide, and, and I gave football away. And at the time, I was a ruckman. When I was 10 or 11 years old, I would have to take my birth certificate with me to every game uh, because I was so tall, you know, in the under 10s and 11s. So <laughs> I was a ruckman, but when I took that season off after that friend of mine died, I, I really, you know, wasn't fit enough. And they had some injuries in the under 17s. And so they said to me, well, I said, look, I, I can't come back and play. I'm not fit enough to play in the ruck. And I said, that's okay. Just sit at full forward. And, you know, we just need a player on the field. I kicked 13 in my first game. And then over about four or five games, I kicked 50 goals. And next thing I was playing in the under-19s, at least for Mantle. You know, they took me through uh, for five or six weeks and then played in the in the premiership team of the Colts at East Fremantle in 80, 81. Uh, and next thing I started in the in the seniors in 82, while I was a senior in high school at uh, Applecross, I was playing in the seniors at East Fremantle. So that sort of set me on that senior football track. And then uh, obviously in the 86 season, I had a really good uh, season, although I was having a lot of problems with my knees at that stage. Uh, but the Eagles took a chance on me and I played five games with West Coast in fact, I played in the first game ever that West Coast played uh, against Richmond. But then my knees gave up on me. So I had a reconstruction at the end of the 87 season. I missed most of that season. And then uh, all of the 88 season. And then I was getting ready. I packed my, I had a four-wheel drive. I was packing my four-wheel drive. I was going to head up north and go fishing with a mate of mine. And uh, Melbourne called me and they said, you know, how are your knees? And I said, look, they're nice and strong. But the Eagles have said... They think I'll never play football again. And they said, well, let's let me be the judge of that. So they flew me to Melbourne and they said, no, your knees are fine, which they weren't. They were okay, but they weren't <laughs> fine. Uh, and so they took a chance on me and they took me in the supplemental draft at the, the end of the 88 season. And then I went back to Melbourne. Yeah, so you had an outstanding sort of couple of years there at Melbourne, like leading goal kicker for the two seasons, 89 and 90. You sort of ended up with a career of over 200 goals, which... Is outstanding for that era as well. Uh, my question was for you now is like you're sort of heading into your last season, 1993. Most players of that generation had a second career or a second job. Where did the idea of NFL after football become a night come into come into effect? So uh, we played a couple of exhibition games when I was at Melbourne. We played at Toronto at the Sky Dome against Geelong, and we also played in Portland against the Eagles uh, in Portland, uh, Oregon. And so uh, I'd won a long kick contest that year uh, at, at the start of the football season. They kept me out at halftime of the game and made me punt against the Toronto Argonauts punter uh, during the exhibition game. And so there's a guy named Hank Lissick, which coincidentally, he left the Argonauts and went to the Chargers. He said to me at halftime, he goes, dude, you should try this. And I'm like, nah. I said, look, I'm playing Aussie rules. I'm having a great time. And it was it was my first season at Melbourne. You know, I was still pretty fit. But I bought a couple of footballs when we were there in Toronto. And every off-season, if I was, you know, going on my off-season trip, or we'd go, I'd take the footballs with me and have a bit of a punt somewhere. So as the seasons went on and I realised that my AFL career, my legs were starting to fall out from underneath me, Chris Jones, our strength coach at Melbourne, said uh, he, he, he went to the University of Oregon and he would come over to the training camps of the NFL teams in the off-season, or like in the middle of our season, he'd disappear and go to their training camps in June, July. And so Jonesy was actually the guy that brought gloves into the AFL uh, game because he came back and, and said, you know, the, the wide receivers have had these. Yeah. He brought back four or five pairs. 
But if you notice in those in that era, I had a left glove and Jimmy Steins had a right glove. That was the same pair of gloves. Oh, no. so we only had one. We only had one pair of gloves, That's and I didn't weird. like wearing both gloves to kick the mm-hmm. ball. So I had the left, and Jimmy had the right to be able to tap the ball with his right foot, <laughs> so, with his right hand. So it was uh, yeah. So it was only one pair of gloves. So it, it was uh, anyway. So Jones, he put it in my head. He said, "Look, you know, how about we? Um, uh, how about you give this a go? I'll make a call for you." see if we can't get someone to uh, take a chance on you. And that's where it started from there. You ended up on a honeymoon or a delayed honeymoon to go over to the States and then give this a crack. How did that kind of trip happen? Because I think you've said in the past, you're a big believer in fate in the way this turned out. Oh, 100%. So, you know, every off-season, Jones, you go, we think we can get another leg, another year out of your legs. And, and so the start of the 93 season, we went and had a coffee down in South Melbourne. And he's like, I think this might be it. Halfway through the season, it was sort of apparent that was going to be my last year. And I spent the second half of the year in the reserves. And uh, and so I won a long kick contest at the start of that year. And the first prize was two tickets to Los Angeles. And so I said to the people then, I said, I'm going to propose to my girlfriend, Rosemary. And uh, we're going to come across and we're, and we're going to go to, the, go to the States, use these tickets as a honeymoon. And we did. While I was here on my honeymoon, Jones had made a phone call to... Uh, a couple of teams, and one of them was the Chargers, and we were up in Seattle, and uh, he called and said, if you can get down there by Thursday, they'll give you a tryout. So we caught a train all the way from Seattle to San Diego for 36 hours and got off train lagged, not jet lagged, and uh, and went and had a punt. So... (laughs) You know, that's sort of how it happened. And I did read as well in an article that you would, you know, you'd had a few balls and you had to go kind of practice your punting during the honeymoon and you ended up in some strange places. We did, yeah. So, you know, in those days, you don't have the internet, so you can't really Google anything. So I'd pull the map out. We'd be in the back of a taxi and I'd be like, hey, there's a big green space here in Los Angeles. And so we'd get this taxi and the guy goes, who died? And I'm like, what are you talking about? And he was taking us to Forest Lawn, which is the biggest cemetery in Los Angeles, but it was the only green belt that I could see that I thought I could have a punt. And then we went to uh, Presidio Park at Golden Gate uh, Golden Gate Bridge in San Francisco, and the side of the hill was like this, and I was punting like one leg long, one leg lo- uh, short. And, you know, So we just did wherever we could. We could go and have, we'd go and have a punt, and Rosemary would would shag footballs and throw them back to me. So I'll, I'm forever thankful. She's as much a part of this journey as I am. That's amazing. That's And, look, you know, not a lot of greenery in L.A. to get in this place regardless. So. I'm sure I could find a high school somewhere to go and have a pump, but the first thing I found was, unfortunately, a cemetery. You go to the tryout. Um, I know that a few fly balls kind of maybe knocked you in the head a couple of times, but overall, how did you think this tryout went? Yeah, so the, the first day, there was actually in the stadium. So it's a bit like the, the teams do now, right? So they don't practice in the stadium. They have a practice field outside. But the first day, they didn't really want to see me. They, they were doing it as a favour to Jonesy. And, and so they just put me down in the stadium and they gave me some footballs and said, just, just flip it in your hand and, and putt it. So I hit a, a few warm-ups and, and uh, the guy was standing about uh, 45, 50 metres away and I said to him, back up. And he goes, no, I'm good. So I banged one about 75 over his head up into the stands and he's like, yeah, no worries, I'll back up. So, and Johnny Lindemann and I have been, have been good mates ever since from that day. He said, you nearly killed me with some of those punts. But, but I always said after about five years in the league, after I'd been to Pro Bowls and stuff, I don't think I hit 10 footballs as good as I hit those 10 that day. I bombed them. Amazing. And I, I shanked one punt sideways into the stands 
and nine of those 10 went 75 metres. And so uh, about five in, the guy came up to me and he said, uh, just, are you good? And I said, yeah, I'm good. And he goes, all right, I'll be back in a minute. And he disappeared. And I thought, oh, geez, that, that's the end of that. And he brought this guy back with him. And this guy was literally wearing flip-flops, shorts, and like a collared shirt like me. Did not look like what a general manager for an NFL team would look like. And he goes, do that again. And I bombed another five in a row. And uh, he goes, this is Bobby Bettard, our general manager. And what I didn't realize was Bobby's a Southern California guy and he's as casual as they are, but he's in the Hall of Fame. He's one of the best general managers ever in the NFL. And we unfortunately passed away a couple of years ago. But if he'd come out in a collar and tie and stuff, I think I would have panicked and I don't think I would have hit that five (laughs) as good as I hit that, you know, those days. So it was a lot of fun. And then the second day they said, well, you know, we like what we see. Um, can you come back tomorrow? So I came back with Price Warren, who was one of our physios at Melbourne Footy Club, and we're having a kick-to-kick. And, you know, anyone in Australia can kick a ball 20 metres, 30 metres. So Price is kicking it back to me, and I kick it to him. And someone came up and said, which one of you guys is trying out? Because they couldn't believe that there were two guys who kicked the ball back as ballers. So anyway, so I went out, and Sam Anno, the long snapper at the time, was good mates with the punter, John Kidd. And so he ripped me maybe the fastest snap I've ever caught and it went right through my hands, hit me right in the nose and I shanked it sideways. And all the coaches were standing on the sidelines right after practice out on the practice fields and they're like, yeah. <laughs> and I, was, I thought, ah, oh, that's the end of that. So I said, give me another one and I bombed it out into the parking lot out to where all the cars were parked over the fence and they're like, oh, okay. <laughs> so it was sort of a bit hit and miss the second day with the, with the snap, but it was, I definitely showed him enough leg strength to give us a shot. And so that was uh, November 93. It was probably six weeks after the grand final. And uh, I came back in March 94, ended up on practice squad that year, and then went to NFL Europe, started 95, played the whole season there. I still don't think they ever saw any of the footage. They just wanted, they called the coach and said, did he drop any snaps? And they went, no, he didn't drop any snaps. He goes, perfect. That's all. They were worried I was going to freak out in the game. And I'm like, I'm playing in front of 12,000 people in Amsterdam. I'm playing in front of 90,000 people at the G. I don't think that's going to worry <laughs> me too much. I'm really trying to imagine an Australian moving to Amsterdam to play an American football. That must have been a, a foreign experience to start with. Yeah, and it was great. We played at the old Olympic Stadium. And uh, our coach's wife was, uh, she went and sat in the royal box. And everyone's like, you can't sit in the royal box unless you're the queen. What are you doing? And she goes, well, the coach's wife. And they're like, but the queen of, this is the queen of the Netherlands. You can't sit in the royal box. So there was all sorts of stuff like that, you know. And the great thing about being on one of those lower leagues is not a lot of infrastructure. So you had to be self, self-coached and self-resilient. And, you know, we had such a great time in Amsterdam and, and uh we would practice early in the morning, so all the afternoons you could go and explore the place. And so we had a really good experience. We lived there for four months and, uh, you know, travelled around Europe. And, and so we didn't have kids at the time, so Rosemary and I used it as a, a real, uh, you know, travelling experience and, uh, and still look back at it nowadays and go, what a, a terrific time it was, you know, to be to be young and, and getting paid to be on a holiday, basically. I think it was probably the earliest indication of how you're going to play as a physical punter. In Scotland, you managed to knock down uh, someone who's rushing to block your punt, put him on the ground and get the punt off. I'm assuming they were thinking, 
This guy is massive, by the way. Was it was it expected? Was I know it would have been a scrap of players there. Was anyone getting physical? Yeah, look, it's, um, I had a really good snapper named Peter Parlay from uh, Hawaii, and unfortunately, after the first couple of games, he got injured. And our backup was a guy named John Bock, and he was our starting centre. A lot of times, if your centre is your long snapper, he's thinking about getting giving up a sack on third down. He's not thinking about snapping the ball to you. And so he snapped one over my head, and I went up, caught it one-handed, and as I came down, a guy from the, from Scottish Claymores was right in front of me. And for some reason, I just balked him, dropped a shoulder on him and knocked him over and then kicked it all <laughs> on the ground. Anyway, it was probably a 30-something-yard punt. It wasn't a great punt, but it wasn't a block. And I, I ran off the field, and the coach grabbed me by the face mask, and he goes, if you ever... He thought I just, I just took off. And he goes, you have a maverick like that again by yourself? He goes, I'll cut you on the spot. <laughs> And I said, oh, okay, coach, no worries, whatever. And I was still freaked out that a guy had just got that close. And then the next day he came up to me before the punt team meeting and he goes, dude, that was the most unbelievable thing I've ever seen. How did you ever get that ball off? <laughs> it's like, you know, it was just instinct. It was Aussie rules instinct in, in the middle of a, a game, you know. So he, uh, he had a lot more respect for me once he watched the film. So, you know, but that's part of making it up in Amsterdam. I got my long snapper, at da uh, David Bin at the Chargers, played 19 years in the league. I never got a bad snap from him in 11 years of playing for him. And, uh, you know, so well, I, I had a bunch of snaps in Amsterdam that I never had to deal with when I was in the NFL. We'll get to the charges. You make it to this team and you play with some of the NFL's best. You know, Junior Seau, LaDainian Tomlinson, Drew Brees, not in his prime at the time, but Coach Jim Harbaugh was even on the team, I think, as a backup yeah. and maybe one starting position. When you went over to the Vikings, Randy Moss was there. The, the list goes on, surrounded by greats. My question is, do, you know, despite being in a different position, were you able to learn anything from these guys who obviously became legends and you became a legend in your own right? What were you able to take from them and, and anyone in the locker room? So Junior was one of my favourite guys. And uh, I didn't know that anyone even knew my name. And I hit a punt. It was probably one of the best punts. It was an 80-yard punt in, uh, in training camp. And Junior came over, and he nearly knocked me flat on my back. And he goes, that's the kangaroo man from Australia. And I'm like, what? And he goes, dude, <laughs> you keep doing that. You're going to punt in this league. And I didn't even know Junior even knew I existed, you know. So after practice, he came up to me, and he goes, you hang with me. And I go, what are you talking about? He goes, you're an Islander. And I go, What? And we had, we had uh, Alfred Papuna, who was Tongan, and Junior, who was Samoan. And he goes, yeah, man, you're from a real big island. And I, oh. so he, he, <laughs> he locked me in with the Polynesians, which I was very proud to be yeah. part of, you know. So yeah, I bet. He, uh, he goes, yeah, bro, you're from a big island. He goes, the Hawaiians think they got a big island, but you're from a real big island. So anyway, <laughs> it was, he was one of my favorite guys ever. And, and when we played in Sydney at the Olympic Stadium, he basically donated his whole week of appearances to me and said, wherever you want me to go. And so we got him a car and a driver and he, he literally was an ambassador for the charges that whole week around. And his daughter's named Sydney because of, he went, he went on his honeymoon to Sydney. So he goes, I love this place, man. So he just came up to me as the most famous player on our team. He goes, whatever you need me to do this week. That was Junior, you know, it's a terrific dude. That, that's awesome. And you've alluded to when you guys did come down to Sydney, and uh, do an exhibition game with the Broncos. Junior, obviously, there, and a couple of members of the team. Uh, I know this because my dad was actually there. So he was at the luncheon yep. that you hosted nice. at. Um, and if you could just verify for me, is this your signature? Ah, is this yes, it, is. Yes, it is. is yours? Okay, good. Okay, well, I'll tell him I, I believe in that. <laughs> it's so funny. I just, I did a, I just did a, uh, a, um, an appearance last year when I was home at the MCG. 
and I had a bunch of those footballs left, so I, I, I blew them up, signed them, and everyone was so happy. They got, I still had some of those footballs from that year, so they've been sitting in storage oh, for awesome. 17 years. I handed them off to these people. I said it might be a little historic, the uh, Chargers record. I think they've had some pretty good years since I left, but... Yeah, it's the same. It's exact same football, yeah. Yeah, oh, that's that's awesome. Um, well, I want to ask you a question that my dad actually asked you at the luncheon and it goes back to what we're saying at the top of the show, which was what was it like making the All-Madden team? And, you know, as you've said before, being a punter or special teams was rarely announced. I think it was six years before you got named as a punter that they hadn't had anyone on there. It's such a big deal. Can you tell our listeners kind of why it is so massive? Yeah, because when you when you play at the punting position, and, and we try to pass this knowledge on to some of our young Aussies that are coming across to college, is you're sort of the forgotten position. And most people, you know, the first time I met Ray Nitschke, who's a great Green Bay Packers linebacker, and I was, I was representing the NFL International at the Super Bowl, and I was speaking it to the, all the international vendors and stuff. And so they introduced me to Ray Nitschke, and they said... And he goes, man, you've got a weird accent. Where are you from? I said, Australia. He goes, we got Australians in the league? And I said, yeah. And he goes, oh, what position do you play? Because I'm big, you know, I look like a tight end. And he goes, I said, I'm a punter. He goes, oh, man, you're not even a real football player. And that was my indoctrination into how you were dealt with as a punter, right? So to actually, you know, honestly, you know, we have a lot of integrity in AFL football and and you get humbled uh, by the senior players when you're young and, and, you know, you learn – you learn the system of, of discipline and all that sort of stuff. I really felt for all those young guys that had to block for me every play. And honestly, I only had to do it a couple of times a year. If I had the obligation, if I if I gave up a big punt return, I would definitely go and stick my head in. And I had the opportunity to do it a few times. So I think it gave me a little bit of integrity as far as tackling is concerned. I wouldn't say I was a great tackler when I was playing Aussie rules, but you know that there was a time where... I lived on the, you know, the next shank punt is going to get me sent home to Australia, and that motivation was there. So if a big punt return comes, I knew it was going to be blamed on me. So I came down there a little bit upset, and uh, usually tried to stick my head in. But I also understood those boys were doing that every play for me while I was punting and just jogging down the field. So my obligation was to try and do it if I could. You had a career with uh, many different highlights but if you could take us on the field for that one moment and walk us through a play that just stands out to you what would that play be it was actually a pre-season game we were experimenting with a punt called the rocket punt and i had a coach who was a young coach and he, was, he would freak out he, he'd like hyperventilate on the sideline and pass out before a play and we're like dude i said well, look we're going to try this rocket punt and i'd hit it a couple of uh, games in a row and we got backed up on the one yard line and he's like I don't know whether we want to do a rocket punt here. And as we're jogging out, the whole team's like, rocket, rocket. And I'm like, okay. <laughs> so I, I hit off the one-yard line, I hit an 87-yard punt to the 12 at the other end. And I, I ran off going, I was so excited. I'm like, man, this is going to be great. And I looked in his eyes, and he was his eyes were as big as saucers. And he goes, we are never going to do that. <laughs> he goes, he goes oh, I was freaking out every yard of that thing. He's going to return it for a touchdown. I was going to get fired. So that was the last time we hit that rocket punt. Now you see guys hitting them all the time, and I'm like, man, that was so much fun. But, yeah, an 87-yard punt, you know, oh. from, from the one at one end to the 12 at the other yeah. end, and I'm thinking, and one of the guys is like, dude, the field's only 100 yards long. What are we going to do, you know? So uh, that was a lot of fun, you know, and then doing the drop punt in games. You know, knowing there was an Australian punt that was going to be 
sort of a legacy punt to the game. And now I watch even high school kids hit it. You know, it's a, it's a lot of fun to watch people do that punt and know where it started. Speaking of that, how does it feel to be known as the guy who introduced the drop punt? Yeah, so I feel like it's sort of my gift to the game. You know, it's they've given me, the game's given me so much that, uh, you know, I was talking to some guys the other day about it. And I said, look, it's, I wasn't allowed to use it the first couple of years because it was something they'd never seen before. You know, the only thing that spins backwards usually is the kickoff. And then we got a new set of coaches and Frank Novak said to me, you know, I'd love to do that. And I did it in Amsterdam. So he, he knows that I, that it was successful in the game. Mm. And so, you know, it was really designed to keep the ball out of the end zone. Spirals are really hard to, to control on those short fields. And the drop punt, you know, is easy. So, you know, that was my plan was to try and do that. And then it sort of worked out really well. So, uh, you know, as, as it went on, to watch guys that I'd taught do that, like Shane Leckler from the Raiders, his coach was my, was my special teams coach at my second Pro Bowl. And he, he sort of grilled me for the whole week like a sponge, like, how do you do this? What are you doing it for? And then he taught it to Shane when he went back. And then to watch people that were totally unrelated, people I'd never, they just watched it on video and taught themselves. I thought it was pretty cool to see, uh, you know, someone do that. So, you know, it still gives me a little, a little tingle when I watch any kid, uh, whether it be college or pros, line up inside the 50, and then if they hit a spiral, I'm like, oh, come on, man. Can't you ever watch film? You haven't seen the drop? I'm like, come on. You know what uh, it's the one thing that a lot of American kids ask me for is how you hit that. They call it everything. All these coaches want to name things. They want to call it the flip punt, the Aussie over punt. They have all these weird punts. I'm like, I uh, talked to a kid last night with his dad, you know, on uh, on Zoom, just uh, talking about, uh, about the drop punt and the body position and how you do it. And he said... It's his favourite punt. And I'm like, well, I can't teach you. If you already know how to do it, how am I going to teach you? you know? so, <laughs> so you're admitted to the Chargers Hall of Fame in 2012. And what's really special about this is it was decided by fan vote for the very first time. And did you have any awareness this was coming through, you know, to be inducted as a punter into Hall of Fame, but by the fans because you were such a, a hero and a champion to them? It wasn't expected. How did you feel? No, it was never expected. I mean, this. At the time, I think I was the third punter in anyone's Hall of Fame of any of the teams. Um, and it's a great week to talk about it this week because Antonio Gates, who you know was one of my teammates, he was he was the guard on my punt team, uh, and he's going into the Chargers Hall of Fame. And hopefully later in the year they'll they'll say that he's going to be inducted into the NFL Hall of Fame because he's really, you know, he's a first ballot Hall of Fame. He's probably the best tight end ever to play. And now you've got some really good tight ends, but he was a game changer because he was not as big as the traditional tight end and he was not as small as the regular wide receiver and he was a real hybrid where he could block and he could also catch the pass. So to be in that name and the fact that Junior, who we just talked about, was the, the week before me, the year before me was Junior. So when at the old Qualcomm Stadium, I'm not sure they do it at the new SoFi Stadium, but at Qualcomm, my name was right next to Juniors the whole time. It's a, awesome. it's a real thing of pride for me. So, you know, to even be as a punter up there, we have Rolf Benershka, who was one of our terrific kickers at the, at the Chargers, and me. And I think Mike Cyprus will go in there eventually, and then hopefully David Dean, my long snapper, would go in. Uh, it's, a, it's a great season of pride to, to be there. Now, it really means nothing other than the fact that the people of San Diego voted me in and are very prideful of that too, is the fact that they they uh, they were the ones that wanted me up there. So I'm, I'm very happy for that. I think, you know, that you were unique as a punter, obviously, because of 
the thing we talked about why John Madden kind of looked at you for the old Madden team was your physicality. And there's some great clips online. If anyone wants to go and have a look at them, they're still on YouTube. We've watched them a bunch, homie, because we've done episodes on Aussies in the league and big hits. You have made some incredible big tackles on punt returns. And obviously it kind of brings into your AFL background where you thought, well, I'm going to put my body on the line here. It's just what I'm used to doing. What was the reaction from the Chargers when you first started doing that? If you look at the one where I made the tackle against Andre Hastings at uh, Pittsburgh, yep. there's, a, there's a commentator there who was one of our linebackers uh, who just retired, Jim Laslovic. And I actually did radio for like 10 years with Jim, but he was the guy on it. And so to have a linebacker be surprised that a punter would go in and smoke somebody like that, uh, Laz and I talked about it a lot over the years about about that. And he's like, I've just never seen it before. He goes, the pun is usually already on the sideline when the guy breaks through like that. And I'm like, well, you know, I'm an angry Australian. And, and uh, if you return a punt, that was a 64-yard punt. So if you bring it back 35 yards, I'm going to be even more angry. You know, there was a few over the years. I made a nice play against uh, Philadelphia where I caused a fumble. And it was the it was the difference in the game between winning and losing. And, you know, the, the coach showed it probably 10 times on the Monday uh, that I because he's like, you know, the punter never does this and he never makes a, a difference in the points. Uh, one of our run, uh, running backs, Tony Vincent, he went to Baltimore and we used to play, the Padres used to play at, the, at Qualcomm Stadium with us. So half the season we'd play on the baseball dirt and it was really hot and it was hard and it was slippery. And I came in and tried to tackle a guy once and I slipped on the dirt and my shoulder pad went right in through his face mask and it spread his nose right across oh. his face. <laughs> and I had no idea I'd done it. Anyway, after the game, I'm, you know, chatting to guys and Tony Vincent came up and he goes, man, what did you do to my guy? And I go, what are you talking about? He goes, he's in hospital getting his nose adjusted. <laughs> I go, no way, really? And he goes, yeah, he said, uh, he said, yeah, I slipped through and the pad came in through his face mask and just broke his nose. So I'm like, well, tell him to stay away from me then, mate. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> So honestly, honestly, it's because I had a horrible technique. So those guys would come in like squared up to you like this and I'd come yeah. in with an Aussie rule shoulder. So I'd get right through it. So it was the fact that I had no idea what I was doing. I was just coming really fast and angry at them. And so a lot of times I would win the blocking thing because they didn't know how to block a guy coming in sideways using his hip and shoulder so that's that's really what i was doing it's funny that because jordan mylata has spoken about his adjustment into the league and that you know jason kelsey's trying to get him into blocking and he wants to go head down to the side like a league tackle or a union tackle and safely get in there and jason's slamming his head and goes you've got to put your head right in his helmet just right up in his helmet and he goes i've got to unlearn all this stuff that's right I will tell you, he's he's such a phenomenon. I watched the Super Bowl last year, and I've never seen a professional defensive end give up. Like he's rushing, he's rushing, and Jordan's got him, and he's like, "Yeah, I'm done. You got me." <laughs> and he did it like in the Super Bowl. Mm. He did it three or four times. I'm like, "Dude, this guy's just so strong, so big. It's unbelievable to watch. It's pretty cool. I like it." We well, sort of you've had a long career with the Chargers there, and then you. You're on to the Vikings. The NFL is known for having been brutal with its players. Did you get the opportunity to decide the end of your career or was it, I'll probably highlight Aaron Sipos at the moment. His career ended one bad punt and he's now back in Australia. How does it feel to be in that constant environment where you, you could end tomorrow? Yeah, look, it's uh, the Chargers drafted Mike Cyprus at the start of the 2003 season. You know, I, I went in and I encourage our young guys here 
you know, I'm talking to all our guys and they're doing, the college kids are doing their exit meetings right now. And I said, look, during the season, you're a, you're a, you execute what the coach wants you to do. And it's a subservient relationship. Yes, coach, I'll do what you need. But the exit meetings is where you talk man-to-man with those coaches. And I went in with Marty Schottenheimer and I said, coach, it's been great, but it's time for me to go. And he goes, what are you talking about? I said, well, you drafted Mike Cyphers. I've mentored him this year. Steve Christie and I have taken him on. We think we've taught him enough to be a punter for 10 years in this league. And we were right. He punted 12 years at the Chargers and was way better than me. I think he's one of the best punters in the game, even though he didn't get all the accolades that Shane Leckler got during that time. But I said, it's time for me to go. And Marty sort of looked back at me and he said, this is the most honest exit meeting I've ever had with a player. <laughs> and I said, look, I've been here 10 years or you know, 11 years. And I said, I've really enjoyed my time here, but I've got to go get something else out at the end of my career. And you've got a kid that's going to be this, be here for 10 years. And he's, he appreciated that. So uh, did I get to choose the end of my career? No. I, uh, I went, went to Minnesota for two years. I knew my knees were not very good. I passed a physical, which was a surprise to me to pass that physical. But I, you know, And I punted okay those years, but we had such a good team offensively. I spent a lot of time just pooch punting. So my average looks average my last year, but we had Randy Moss, we got Dante Culpepper. You know, they're moving the ball, and we had a really good special teams that year. So we returned the ball to the 40, get two first downs on punting just outside field goal range a lot. So we did a lot of that that year. And then my second year, it was first year Ben Graham ever played at the Jets. We played those guys in preseason. And I'm 40 years of age at that stage because I was 30 as a rookie. So I'm running down on a punt and they break it to the outside. And I'm thinking, do I really have to make a tackle in preseason? But what I didn't realize is one of my young running backs, his, I'll never forget his name, Adam, Adam Chinobli Echewabu. He was a, a Nigerian kid from Cal. He'd missed a block and he scooped around and he circled back behind. And he's running down thinking, I'm going to get cut because I just missed a block. And as I went to push the guy out of bounds, he submarined me from behind and dislocated my knee. Oh. So it was friendly fire. Oh. And I sat on the ground and my foot was pointed sideways and I, <laughs> I picked my leg up and I snapped it back into place and my head coach was saying, he nearly threw up on the sideline. <laughs> and it was sort of a normal thing to me because my knees would do that stuff all the time. <laughs> they would just completely I saw him 10 years that. later at the Del Mar races and he goes, dude, that was still the nastiest thing I've ever seen on a football <laughs> So anyway, the following week, I went out and punted uh, the fourth preseason game, and I just couldn't stand up. It was just my knee was letting go. And there was a young Chris Cluey who was the camp punter at Seattle and had a tremendous game. And the next day, they cut me, and they signed Chris, and he punted seven or eight years for the for the Vikings after that. So do I get, did I get to choose? I got to choose to go to a team for my last year, but I was hoping that it would be too. So no one ever, no one ever gets to really choose the end, you know, either mother nature or an injury takes you out in the end. Yeah. It's, it's so abrupt. It's almost cruel for how much work time and effort and, and love you put into the game and an expense to your family. How did you kind of deal with that? The decision comes down, being cut. What, what's next from there? So, I mean, between you and me, that game at Seattle, I knew I was done. I mean, I'm out there just sucking and, and knowing that that they're not going to tolerate it, and neither am I. I set my bar pretty high to be, you know, one of the top five guys in the league every year, and I knew that that was not going to be possible. The one that was surprised was my wife, Rosemary, because I got the phone call, and they said, look, we're going to release you, and I said, listen, they're going to cut me, and she's like, 
what? Because she's thinking about the family side and I'm mm. thinking about the work, you know, the, the, the occupation part of it. Mm. So we stayed in Minneapolis. We had a house there. I was remodeling a house uh, and I was just working on it for a few weeks. And unfortunately, Chris Cluey got injured and I went in and punted for a couple of games later in that season. But I still was, I mean, I had hardly any ACL on my left knee. So I literally, it was one of those ones a bit like the first day at the Chargers. I went and bombed the workout. I just bombed punts. I'm like, man, I can do this. And the next day I was so sore I could hardly walk. <laughs> so, so I went in and I was there for a couple of weeks, but then Chris sort of got a brace and got it, got it sorted out. And then uh, he went back and punted and they cut me again. So, you know, it wasn't really, it was nice to get a couple of games in and, and know that the Vikings still appreciated me. It was no animosity when they cut me. I, I just realized that, the, you know, the, I was 41 years old. It was the end of my career. So we're now post-career. Matt McBriar called you the godfather. Articles call you the patron saint of Australian punters and your home becomes an Australian embassy for punters, the next generation coming through. How do you now reflect on your time in the game of NFL and the influence you have had for the next generation of players? Yeah, look, I, I had a such a great time doing what I was doing. And like you guys said, it was just fortuitous that I was in the right place at the right time with the right people and the right leg. And so we try to pass that on, our knowledge to these guys. We've had over 100 guys stay with us since I retired. In fact, we had a guy named Dan Gold. He was at, he was at one of those games when I was playing at the Vikings. And when it was the third game, and he was at Pennsylvania, UPenn. He's a kid from Melbourne. He just called me and said, can, we, can I come and learn from you? And so, you know, when I was at Minnesota, I asked them to work Ben Graham out. And so the coach was like, what are you talking about? Why are you working out another punter? I said, well, people have been talking about Ben for 10 years. And so I want to see if I'm going to recommend him or, or whatever. I want to see if he's good enough. And he was. It was terrific. It was great to see Ben. Ben, at the end of Ben's career, he stayed with me, uh, with our family. Sav Rocker, at the end of Sav's career, they used us as a, as a, as a spot to stay and and so, you know, every kid that's known or, who, or who's asked has been allowed to stay. Uh, and it's been tremendous, you know. And so I live vicariously through them because we had such a great experience coming to America. I want these guys to do that too. People go, why do you live in Tulsa, Oklahoma? Well, the reason we moved to Tulsa was my son came and played college football here at TU. They asked me if I would coach. And I said, yeah, let's go on a, an adventure as a family. So we came across here. The great thing about that is we're right dead smack in the middle of America. So any kid that's in college in America is only a couple of hours flight from Tulsa, Oklahoma. And so, you know, we've become a halfway house for a lot of these guys because in the in the football season, when they have a break, sometimes it's not long enough to go home to Australia. The last thing we want is a kid just stuck on campus with everyone's left and gone home. And there's, uh, you know, so... A lot of these kids will either drive or fly and come and see us. We put a group together in those breaks and have a punt together and, and uh, Rosemary feeds them some, you know, pavlova and some, she's really good at uh, sausage rolls and party pies. And we do lamb and, you know, all the Aussie things that those guys would, would miss being away from home and we just try and give them a little bit of comfort. And I think it helps the parents of the kids when they put them on a plane to the other side of the world knowing that there's sort of almost a second family there to look after them. So we've got sons all over the country now and, and uh, you know, they're punting in college and we live vicariously through them. And then if I can pass on some of my knowledge, I love doing it. 
it's just incredible how you give back. And you're know, someone who speaks of, you know, I, I got so much from the league. It is almost my duty and, and my honour to, to give it back. It and that's, that's an incredible thing because that old school setup of come stay with me, come stay with my family, it just doesn't seem like it's happening or talked about in the modern game or in, you know, opportunities in anyone's kind of career and they're looking for help. So to provide that service to open your doors is pretty incredible. Yeah, a lot of guys, I think they fight too long before they pass their knowledge on. And so for me, you know, Mother Nature is going to tell me when it's time to go. So why not pass it on to the people behind and then watch them go? I live, I talk to Mike Cyprus three days a week right now. He took over from me 12 years ago. There was absolutely no animosity to him taking over at the Chargers. In fact, we talk right now, the fact that the Chargers won't let us mentor the kids that pump there and that we think they've lowered the bar on, on their special teams not as far as we did. I passed it to a, a guy who I knew was younger and better than me. And I love the fact that Dave Bin had another good punter to punt, you know, to snap to. Dave snapped both of our careers pretty much. I think, you know, we took a lot of pride in that. It was passed on to me before I got there with John Carney and Rolf Benershka saying we've always had good special teams at the Chargers. And I think I took that on. Uh, and, and so it's, I think it's, the, one of the greatest things you can do is pass your knowledge on to the other generation and see how they use it. So, you know, I really, I really enjoy doing it. We've got 15 kids over here in college. We've got a bunch of other kids that didn't come through our academy in Melbourne with Sav Rocker that, and Dwayne Armstrong that uh, we still watch their games because they're Aussies and I, and I want to see how they're doing well. And I think one of the reasons that we really got into this is years ago when Ben and Sav and Matt McBride were playing, there was a kid that came to University of Arizona and he got homesick and went home. And we all took that personally. We're like, let's never have that happen again. If a kid's homesick, you know, and we've got a kid right now, Jack Bowmeister, who's from Bendigo. He was at Michigan State and he got homesick and he went home. And I stayed in contact with him. And now he's just the, he, he, uh, he's the Pac-12 punter of the year at Utah. And it's, it's so awesome that he, that he stuck with it and went back and did it another time. And it was really cool because there's another kid who was at Tulsa. He's at Cal Berkeley right now. And he was the Pac-12 Pac, Pac second team player, uh, Lockie Wilson. He's like one of my kids too. So, you know, it's, it's wonderful to see them all do well. And, and they call me, you know, a couple of times a week and, and ask technical stuff and parenting stuff and living in America stuff. I'm only too happy to help. Thanks, Darren. That's an incredible career. Great insight there. But we thought we'd finish off with a little bit of a quick round so this is where we're just going to fire out some quick questions and we'll get you to answer them as honestly as you can so well, remember i've been away from australia for 30 years all these aussie kids all the aussie kids talk about afl players and i'm like the day costs you mean peter day we did think about that and I, I i my normal question is what afl player would you take to the nfl and i thought oh you might be watching a lot of afl at the moment so <laughs> I, I've, I've left that one out but what i'm kicking off with is is what's the better locker room post game nfl or afl you know, we, we had a great tradition at at, uh, at Melbourne. We would, you know, and I see the boys doing it now on the TV and, and singing, the, and, you know, we would sing it's a grand old flag, and I think that's tremendous. The American version of it is, uh, you know, get in the showers, do an interview and go and see your family. So the, the post-game locker room uh, thing is not, I mean, it's a very professional uh, league and the way that those guys do it professionally. They do it for money. Because what they do hurts a lot. And so if you didn't do it for money, it would be hard. You know, uh, between you and me, I would have done what I did not for money. 
because I just enjoyed watching, you know, playing those games and watching spirals. But I never told the general manager that when we were negotiating <laughs> contracts. So I was doing the money. So, you know, that was my uh, my agent used to say that to me too. He's like, "Don't tell him you're doing that. <laughs> you're making my job too hard." So, anyway, uh, so the the, the post game locker room stuff uh, at the in the NFL is is nothing like it is in the AFL. So I'll take the AFL singing singing the grand old flag afterwards. Which team's fans were the worst? To interact with in in Australia, in oh, Hollywood. Hollywood. Yeah, no, no, you're yeah. right. But I'll go both. Yeah. So, oh, yeah. so <laughs> good, actually. Yeah. So, and here's why: because we used to play the Raiders, right? So we're in the we're in the uh, the same division as the Raiders, and the Raiders fans were the most knowledgeable smack talkers you've ever seen. So what they would do is they'd read the the, the media guide, and they would get like way down, like Noble Park sucks, and you're like, dude, I don't even know what that was like. Honestly, they would go see David Dean. David grew up in San Mateo, which is across the bay from Oakland, and they'd be like, San Mateo's high school hasn't won in 20 years. And he's like, dude, they're talking about my high school. And, it, and so one of the one of my favorite stories was I hit a punt in front of the black hole at the Raiders, and it was a game that we had uh, we had 27 punts in the game between myself and Leo Aragus, who I competed with my first year at the Chargers. Uh, he had 16 punts and I had 11. So one of them was right in front of the black hole. And while I was waiting for the snap, I could feel the quarters bouncing off the back of my helmet. So I could hear them <laughs> pinging you. <laughs> so I bombed this punt and I turned around and I flipped a double burn to the crowd. <laughs> I looked down and there was probably 250 in change sitting at my at my where I've been standing because they've been throwing it off. So the Raiders were the best, worst fans. Mm-hmm. The Philadelphia Eagles fans are just the worst, worst fans. <laughs> just, they, just, they, will, they will moon you. They will tell you things they did to your wife last night. Like, they're nasty. They're nasty. Yeah, right. So I don't like the – I don't. and Sav Rocker played for them. We talk about it all the time. Sav loved the Philly fans. I go, well, you must love them if you play there, but if you're the opposition, no, the worst fans ever. <laughs> all right, let's avoid Philly. Yeah. <laughs> uh, uh, well, if you go to Philly, just wear a Philly hat. Put it that yeah, way. Yeah. Right. No, 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 no. Yeah, I wear the Chargers cap there. So uh, the best stadium you played in? Well, I didn't get to play in some of the new stadiums. You know, uh, Matt. when Matt McBride was playing at the Cowboys, he called me and said, Jerry Jones is going to build the biggest TV set in the world and he wants to know how high to put it in the stadium so we don't bounce pumps off it. <laughs> we said 105 feet because of Mike Cyprus at the time and he... And uh, Jerry said, we're, hit, we're, we're putting it at 90. Don't hit my TV, Matt. So uh, I, wish I, I, I wish I'd played in some of those, those stadiums. Uh, I love playing in Oakland. I, I love playing at the – look, honestly, Qualcomm Stadium was the best stadium I ever played in. You know, and the fact that we had to play on the dirt for half the time. But really it was like being in an outdoor dome because the weather was so beautiful in San Diego most of the time. It got windy, but not super windy, like some of the gusty places like Buffalo or Chicago. Uh, so I really enjoyed that. And then the new Lucas Oil Stadium I played in and uh, the, the Detroit Lions Stadium, uh, they were owned by the Ford family. The Detroit, the downtown Detroit's not great, but if you go through all these industrial buildings, they just take you in through a door and you're in the stadium. Yeah. It's like right in downtown. So that was that was sort of fun. And the so some of the domes, the light was sort of weird. There was sort of that fluorescent light, so it was hard to see. Those two domes had really nice, like, natural light. So anytime you can punt in a dome, the ball flies a mile. So they were, it was a lot of fun to play there. If you had to play another position in the league, which one would you pick? 
tight end. I think, yeah. you know, just because of my size, I was always likened to the tight ends. I thought I could run and catch. They used to put me on scout team at tight end and then Junior would blow me up and I'd be like, no, nah, I'm not playing tight end. It's, uh, yeah, you, you, you gain a new respect for the guys that do it every play. I mean, Junior's feet were messed up. His hands were messed up. They banged their heads. Every time you bang your head inside that helmet, you're like, man, it's loud. And I'm like, they do it 50, 60 times a game. It's tough. So uh, so the answer is not not any other position but punter, <laughs> but really, yeah, I'll jump in because Holly, I know you've got a last question, but it just came to me then. What do you think now? You've had that experience on the field. What is the toughest position in your opinion? Oh, well, there's a, a couple of tough positions. I have a great respect for linemen. They can play 15 years and never touch the football. They're really altruistic guys, and I think that's why I get on well with the offensive line because I'm like, dude, you punch someone in the face for a living... And then they blow a whistle and you go, good job, mate. <laughs> and I, can't I totally can't understand it. If someone's got his fingers up my nose, I'm going, I don't care how many whistles you blow, I'm going, right? So, uh, and then running back linebackers, hit, meeting each other in the A gap, that's maybe the toughest position mm -hmm. is when you, when you try to meet that guy and stop him getting one more inch. So you have to stand up a 250-pound guy with another 250-pound guy. I mean, that's their toughest help. The best athletes on the team, defensive backs. Yep. Because you take world-class athletes, and I can go to, I can go to uh, Tulsa, University of Tulsa right now, and find three guys that would be our Olympic 100-meter runner uh, for the Australian Olympic team, right? So to do that backwards and to anticipate their moves and then cut them off, the DBs are the strongest pound-for-pound -pound and fastest pound-for-pound -pound guys on the team. They're crazy. And so you watch those guys and you just get a new respect for how fast they are. And then every now and then they, they pull up after practice and they go, okay, man, let's go. And they just throw their pads off and they race each other over 100 metres and you go, oh, gosh. Now, that's why, I need, that's why I need hang time and I need direction because if it becomes a running race, no chance. Yeah. No chance. I'm not catching these guys. So... That's why I used to try and use leverage for sideline and every charge of players that was coming trying to turn the guy back on because I knew if I had to chase him, I was done. That's incredible. All right, probably the hardest question here. Who's going to win the Super Bowl this year? Oh, God. I mean, I, I, tried, to go, I tried to go through all the teams. There's a lot of good teams this year, mm. you know, and there's good teams in the AFC and there's good teams in the NFC. Mm. Uh, look, if I go past Kansas City and Philly, but San Francisco, Miami's having a great season. Yeah. The Jacksonville Jags are having a great season. I mean, that it's honestly, in the next five or six weeks, it's going to come down to who stays healthy yeah. and, uh, and whose quarterback's healthy. And I think yeah. that's going to be... I mean, even Jordan Love at Green Bay is having a great oh, they're, season. They're and I know Green Bay was upset when they got rid of Aaron Rodgers, but now you, they're proven true. that It was exactly with me, Mike Cyprus. It's time to pass the baton to someone else, and he's doing it... You've seen guys do it and fail, but he's he, he's really turned that Green Bay team around. So, you know, coming out, if Travis Kelsey can get rid of uh, all the publicity related to Taylor Swift and all that stuff, when he, when he fumbled that ball the other day, I, I guarantee you 100% his head coach was talking to him, and I reckon he said Taylor Swift's name on the sideline. We're going looking. We're going looking. Yeah, yeah, yeah. It's Andy yeah. Reid. He, he'll go deep too because he came from Philly. Yeah. He coached Philly for 10 years, so he knows how to yeah. smack talk. So, yeah, he... Uh, <laughs> 
I think he's like, hey, stop all the girlfriend stuff, and how about we focus on what what you get paid for, buddy? Are you coaching a high there was, again. You can see the look there. Yes, coach. No, coach. Okay. <laughs> okay. That's that's. I, I, Sorry, boys. I'm going to get you cancelled by Taylor no, Swift. No, no. Look, look the Swifties anyway. aren't following oh, no. us anyway. Swifties don't scare us. <laughs> <laughs> Darren, now I know that there's a cause that's very close to you and your family's heart that you've worked hard to raise awareness, contributions for. Um, if you wouldn't mind, could you please tell us about your son, Will, and, and his story? Yeah, so uh, my son, Will, is, uh, he's my, he was my oldest son. And, and uh, when he was six years old, he was, he was diagnosed with muscular dystrophy. And, you know, it was, it's a ho- horrible diagnosis. I was away playing at uh, the first game of the season in 2006. Uh, and sorry, 2002, and uh, against uh, Cincinnati, and it just, you know, it really rocked our whole family. You know, madly you try to be the person that's going to find a cure for a disease like muscular dystrophy, and as you come to talk to scientists and and uh, doctors about it, you realise it's it's going to be one of the ones that's a hard one to cure. Particularly, Will he had a double deletion of uh, of of the uh, chromosomes, so. It's not not able to take advantage of a lot of the, the the therapies they have today, but we were we were one of those ones that used our voice a little bit, and uh, I worked with a a wonderful person named Mary Bednars on at the Pro Player Foundation, and we used to run like Great Aussie Barbecue and night golf and and all sorts of stuff, and we raised funds and we we uh, funded some some fellowships in Queensland and also here in the states. Uh, doing muscular dystrophy research. We we funded through a, a, a great organisation called Parent Project Muscular Dystrophy, and it's a bunch of parents of kids with MD. And, uh, you know, the website you can find uh, under Parent, Parent Project Muscular Dystrophy. And they, they funded a lot of different therapies that helped the boys. And, and uh, uh, we got to a point where we realised that you have to spend time with your boys. And so... We sort of backed away from some of that research funding and, and madly trying to find the cure. And we spent time with Will. And, and so when we were at La Costa Canyon High School, which is a really good school in uh, Carlsbad in California, the head coach came up and asked Will to be a coach on the team. And I coached with him. In, and his personality was Coach B. Uh, Heath Farwell, who's my buddy at uh, Jacksonville, he was uh, the, the special teams coach at Buffalo before that. And there's a, there's a week during the season called My, My Cleats, My Cause. And he put Will's name on his cleats and uh, wore them on the sidelines. So Will has coached all these kids we talked about. Will's coached them all. And uh, Matt McBriar, all those guys. So anyway, we un- uh, I'm going to get emotional. We lost him two years ago. and It's been, you know, so anyway, we remember him. He's a wonderful kid. Thank you for, for sharing that with us, Darren. And, and it is a cause that we can still contribute to, I guess, for Australia, if you know a better one, Darren, but the Royal Children's Hospital in Melbourne, I know that they do a lot of work. Yeah. To that. So if people can uh, look into it, any donations, anything like that, we'd uh, really encourage it. Yes, and when Will was first diagnosed, we, that was the last year we came home and we went and saw Andrew Kornberg, who's one of the, the doctors at, at Children's in Melbourne. He was wonderful as well. So... Yes, there's a lot of people raising uh, good funds around the world for it. And so, you know, if you feel inclined, we'd love you to support it. Excellent. Well, we'll definitely put a link in our episodes of our show and promote it in our social media. If anyone is able to give, that would be incredibly appreciated. 
thank you very much for sharing the story about Will. I I watched some of the. Um, I was able to watch some of the the seven. I think seven come across and did some stories on you and. Oh me. yeah, with uh, yeah. Jason Bennett for Aussies Abroad. Yeah, and I was just like, he was. I just for me personally, it's just um, he was incredible, incredible coach though. Like he was. He was great coach. Yeah, like. Like he and the rapport he could build with the players was incredible. I thought. So that... Matt Matt McBride, one of my favourite photos is probably on on Facebook and stuff. Is is Thomas, my son, leaning on my shoulder and Will's next to it. But what I tell people was that was after Matt got injured, and he he had uh, like a drop foot, so he had surgery and stuff, and he wanted Will to come out and tell him how his technique was different post-surgery as it was pre-surgery and Will had three things that I couldn't see that Matt was doing that I didn't know about. Wow. That's incredible. Yeah. No, I really appreciate you sharing the story and it's... Uh... Darren, look, thanks so much for, for coming on. We've just had you know such a delight to, to have it, a legend of the game here and one who's given so much back to everyone and even making the time to speak to us. You know, we, we have no money and we can't pay you, but You've been generous, generous wow. enough to give us your time. No, so No worries, boys, honestly. We really appreciate Pleasure. it. Pleasure. It really is. Thank you. That was the incomparable Darren Bennett joining us and what an incredible story of achievement and generosity. We simply can't thank Darren enough for joining us on the show. If you want to see any more of this interview, jump on our socials on Instagram and TikTok at Onside Punt. We'll be posting clips throughout the week. Don't forget to rate and review us on Spotify, Apple Music or wherever you're getting our podcast.